It's November 11, 2015. Happy Veterans Day and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. It's a full house in the studio here today. We'll hear from three news guests to start things off. John Wallstrom will tell us about the Kapolei Lofts Energy Fun Fair. Then Kwame Jackson will tell us about the next startup weekend, Honolulu, and perhaps a little about his time on The Apprentice. Then Jared Cushy from Blue Startups will give us the scoops on the Mobile Challenge Asia Pacific semifinal and innovate her double threat pitch off. Woohoo, that was a mouthful. <laughs> Finally, for the remainder of the hour, we'll talk about sensor technology and open hardware with a couple of UH researchers, Brian, Brian Glazer and Brian Chi. What things can we learn and accomplish with grids of connected, distributed, and affordable sensors? What do you want to know about open hardware systems? Of course, you can get your questions answered by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. And of course, first up, we want to welcome John Wallenstrom from Forest City, Hawaii, and he's here to tell us about the Kapolei Lofts Energy Fun Fair. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Happy to be telling you about our stuff and hearing about these other exciting things. So the, uh, I know, you know, Forest City, I mean, they're doing a lot of development, but uh, I've not heard of a energy fun fair. What's this all about? Well, so we're, we're building an affordable uh, apartment project mm-hmm. in Kapolei, and part a very large part of that development and that, that community is sustainable features that we've built into it. Um, it really allowed us to go forward. Without the sustainable features, uh, the economics would not have been as strong. Um, so we're out celebrating that with uh, all of the wonderful partners that helped us bring it together. Now, I, weirdly enough, I came across Kapolei Lofts on Twitter oh. first, and it, it occurs to me because I used to be a renter, and now I'm the next step, which is moving with your parents uh, because, <laughs> because, of the, because of the real estate market. So I was, I'm yes. always interested in seeing rental projects being built. Um, but I imagine that uh, energy and energy savings is not something that only homeowners need to be worried about. So what is it that the Energy Fund Fair is going to be sharing with the community? Well, so we've, we've done a number. There's a whole number of things, and I could speak uh, – at length, but just to highlight a couple, we've worked very well with the Hawaiian Electric Company. We have a 2.5 megawatt PV system on the roof, which is for a standalone uh, project, residential project, uh, I think the largest, certainly the largest in Hawaii, and we haven't found any that are larger in the country. Hmm. Um, So that's been important, and again, that has helped us go forward with the project in and of itself. Uh, It also works really interestingly and hand-in-hand with uh, a hot water system that we have uh, where we're using our hot water tanks actually as energy storage. Hawaiian Electric, Forest City, and Shifted Energy, local startup company, have worked together to to create that system. Um, We've got uh, car sharing. We've got EV chargers. We have just a whole host of other things. Enterprise uh, is doing the car sharing. The EV chargers are with ChargePoint. But all of our partners are coming together uh, to tell the community about what we're doing, number one, but also to celebrate and, and have have people enjoy it. We'll have the Kapolei High School, I'm sorry, Kapolei Robotics team out at noon. It's just going to be a fun day with bouncy houses and food trucks and all sorts of things. So the uh, Kapolei team, uh, are they going to feature anything from uh, which robotics team? Do you know the first robotics or VEX? Uh? It's both uh, Kapolei and it's also Island Pacific Academy. So they'll be out there and I, I imagine maybe dueling it off. We'll, we'll uh-huh. see what happens starting actually, at noon starting at noon on Saturday and you know it's actually because of the other guests we're about to hear from the shifted energy that you mentioned is a local startup it's a spinoff from Kanu Hawaii that's right I think it went through the energy accelerator mm-hmm. went through local programs it found investments so this is a, this is a live real world implementation of their technology 
that they developed and kind of spearheaded here in Hawaii. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And, and you know, truthfully, as a startup, we kind of worked with them and, and worked together very cooperatively. Uh, Hawaiian Electric also was instrumental in that partnership and uh, took them from a, a, a startup to something that's pretty big. This is almost 500 units, so they, they is this helped their, them Is out. this their uh, biggest uh, implementation? Yes. Wow. So uh, startup, I mean, the um, shifted energy, they basically store energy in, in the water heaters. Is right. that correct? Correct, correct, yeah. correct, correct, correct. So, so right, when, we, when the windmills are, are going full tilt at 3 in the morning and none of us are, are watching TV or have our toaster ovens going, that electricity is being stored in the water tanks and then gets distributed later, essentially. Very good. So give us the uh, details, when, where. Uh, come, come on out to Kapolei. Uh, we are right next to the food land, the new food land, uh, on Saturday from 11 to 2 p.m. The exact address is 761 <laughs> Wakea Street. Uh, but you can also look us up on uh, Facebook at, uh, for, under Kapolei Lofts. All right. Sounds so, good. yep, that event is again coming Saturday. I just saw bounce houses, so now my kids are probably going to be. Well, I want to go check out the yeah, mega good. load. We'll, we'll say both of you a spot in the bouncy house. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, John, for joining us. You're welcome. All right. Well, secondly, we have here in the studio Kwame Jackson. He's here to tell us about the next startup weekend. That's this weekend. But you may know the name. I might add that Kwame was a finalist in the first season of The Apprentice and has gone on to do many great things, speaking and sharing his wisdom. Uh, welcome to the show, Kwame. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Aloha and mahalo. Well, you know, we want to get this out of the way. and We want to ask you, what was it like to be working with Donald Trump? <laughs> he is quite a character, and I've been asked that many, many times. <laughs> but not uh, on the, this show. The so. hair is real, the so that we'll real, get that okay. out of the way. Uh, so is the ego and the attitude. Um, but, you know, definitely a master marketer. People can see that in his political run right now. And, you know, we all have good, bad, and ugly about our personalities, and we've seen a lot of his, so. Now, on The Apprentice, you were a runner-up, and I know that even just Googling it, it was a hotly contested, you know, uh, season. But you've gone on from there to kind of not—because not, that wasn't—that isn't the only item on your resume. You've gone on to become a speaker, to become a, a consultant, and share your experiences with others. Um, what have you been up to in the last 10 years? Yeah, decade. Yeah, before The Apprentice, for me, I had been involved in the business community as a marketing rep at Procter & Gamble. I had been at Goldman Sachs as an investment manager. I'm a Harvard Business School MBA. I was there at the height of the dot-com environment from 98 to 2000 when, you know, the business model for every new startup was, you know, take this, you know, glass yeah. of water and cut, add dot-com, right. and then you get founded <laughs> five million, unfunded $5 million. So, essentially, I was there at the height of that uh, and really enjoyed that experience and then went on into, into the tech ecosystem as an entrepreneur. Um, since The Apprentice, I've kind of taken that platform and ran with it. I tell people I do what Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton do, but for a lot less money <laughs> <laughs> as a professional speaker, a strategic consultant, and an entrepreneurial advocate. Advocate uh, with the Small Business Administration and a number of Fortune 500 clients over the last 10 years. What have been some of your recent projects uh, that you can share at least? Yeah, great projects. So I started a men's apparel brand that sold into four department stores nationally, uh, like a small Ralph Lauren or, or, or um, other Hugo Boss brand. I sold it into Macy's, JCPenney, Dillard's, and Belk uh, in over 150 cities throughout the uh, continental United States. Also, I've been involved in tech startups. One is called WeClick, which is a co-located app for group pictures. So kind of think about um, uh, uh, if you think of how people co-locate and take pictures together to say, hey, we're doing these cool things and showing it with another group and they're, they're able to meet up. So kind of a tender for groups. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also been involved in another um, t uh, tech startup called 
Throne, and Throne is basically an eBay marketplace for sneakers and the sneakerhead culture. Ah. Uh, and so I've been an advisor on that as well. Uh, and so then also, as like I said, a speaker and a consultant for many Fortune 500 companies. So what exactly brings you to Hawaii? I mean, how did besides you... Besides the good weather. Besides the good weather <laughs> and, of course, the you know the, the great people here. I see a kukui nut lay, a flower lay. That's so right. you're yes, totally I wore my lays. How did you hook up with the uh, Startup Weekend guys? Uh, so it's an interesting story. Um, one of the organizers and, and principals in Startup Weekend Weekend is a fraternity brother of mine named J.D. Hayes, and he's active in the entrepreneurial community here in Hawaii. Uh, he actually brought me in as a speaker in 2005 at his undergraduate, Indiana University. Oh, okay. uh, and so we've caught, kept in touch throughout the years. He mentioned what was going on with Hawaii and the startup community. I shared with him some of the work I've been doing over the last decade in the space with small business administration and other entrepreneurial ecosystems and thought there'd be a fit to come out here and inspire entrepreneurs, spread messages of entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, and, and really uplift a, uh, a great message. So we're excited. Yeah, that's good. I mean, Startup Weekend has been around for about five years or so, right? And, yes, uh, this is our a- eighth event since 2011, um, but it's been around for five years, and it's really a chance to bring all, all kinds of entrepreneurs together in terms of ideas, an ecosystem of innovation, uh, brand Hawaii as the East meets West tech hub mm-hmm. for clean energy, uh, as well as tech, and really pull those ideas and that ecosystem together. A lot of people don't know that, you know, if you think about what makes a startup successful, it's not just the idea. It's actually been um, ranked that it has to do with timing first and then after timing, there's team and execution mm-hmm. and then the idea is third. And even after the idea is what's called the funding bracket. So it's all about getting that time right, whether it's an Uber and being right or whether it's, you know, YouTube for broadband and the proper expansion. Timing is first. But after that, this really pulls together the second most important parameter, which is the team and, ex- and the execution. So you are bit, you're placing yourself with other great stars in the space, other people with great ideas, great energy, connections to tech, coding experience, developers, um, and pulling all those people together so that you can form teams around great ideas and then move on and execute. So that's well, why I think why Startup Weekend is so important. Yeah, I like the way that you rank those things because the idea is sort of what people focus on, but there's so many other elements to success, in fact. But it's not to say that participants in Startup Weekend don't create something. In fact, four or five companies have come out of Startup Weekend Honolulu that are still out there and kicking. Yeah. Now, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'll, I, I pre- Obviously, you'll appreciate the people and the weather, but do you have at this point a sense of uh, the growth or the evolution of Hawaii's startup or entrepreneurial culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that there have been some great success stories that have come out of Startup Week in Honolulu, but at the same time, I think pulling together the teams of these talented people and being almost in the right place at the right time uh, in terms of kind of making your own luck, as they say, I think is the genius behind Startup Week in Honolulu. It's like you have to be in the right place with the right people in the right environment so that you can kind of percolate through those ideas and then also pivot to others that may come up in the room or in the course of business in the weekend. So I think that's why it's great. It's like putting yourself in the right place to be successful. So Kwame, what do you see as being your sort of primary role during Startup Weekend uh, this coming weekend? Uh, I tell people I'm in the inspiration business and my job is to be one, a judge of these ideas, to be a mentor to some of these teams, to share my past experience on other entrepreneurial ventures, and to also give them an idea of playing at a higher level of their own potential. That It's not just about the great idea. It's not just about the great team. It's about marrying those two together and then executing and being able to see yourself in a higher vision of how to be successful. So helping people to kind of visualize that and be and be successful. So everybody listening who wants to be uh, on uh, the Startup Weekend this weekend, I mean, they're going to want you 
Kwame as their mentor. I'll be there. <laughs> I will be there mentoring some of the teams. I want them to come on to uh, uh, SWHNL.com, Startup Weekend Honolulu, and register. Uh, if they register up front and use my code, code Kwame, uh, they get a 20% off discount. So ah. that's, you know, people who are going to come for viewing only, whether that's just for the Friday night pitches and Sunday night judging, that's only $25, but it's $20 with the code. And if you're going to be an actual participant for the entire weekend, it's $99. Uh, and then if you use my name, Kwame, in the code, it's $79. That and of course, you so can you spell that again just so that people aren't spelling it with a Q or something? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's My name is Kwame, K-W-A-M as in Mary, E. It sounds like Tommy, but it's not. Kwame for Tommy. Uh, and the website is, once again, SWHNL. So StartupWeekendHonolulu.com. And you want to go there to register.SWHNL.com. Great. So that's coming up this weekend. So everybody get out there, SWHNL.com. <laughs> yes, register. Friday the 13th at 6 p.m. Kwame, it's so, been a pleasure and honor to have you in the studio. Thank Thanks you, guys. All right. And now third, last, certainly but not least, the incredibly talented and handsome Jared Cushy. He's operations manager at Blue Startups, and he's here to tell us about a double pitch-off. It's not just one. It's two pitch-offs for startups, mobile applications. So uh, welcome to the show, Jared. Thanks, Bert and Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, but yeah, we're very excited about these two events. Um, it's a little confusing because it's two different pitch-offs on one night, but this is going to be on December 1st. 2015 at Fresh Cafe downtown. Mm-hmm. So what are the a double threat? Yeah. So what are the two threats? That, yeah. That, what that are the two separate are... things that I can sort of in my mind separate the two? Absolutely. So the first one is the uh, Innovate Her pitch off. So this is really focusing on on pitches that empower women. So all applicants must have an innovative product or service that helps impact and empower the lives of women and families. And on the other side is the MCAP, which stands for the Mobile Challenge Asia Pacific. Um, this is a semifinal pitch off, and we're looking for the top three Hawaii companies to represent Hawaii mm-hmm. in the East Meets West Conference, where the regionals will be held. Um, this, this will consist of uh, 27 other companies from nine different countries. This includes Japan, Thailand, Singapore, Philippines, everywhere. Um, and, and after that, they're get, if the top three from there will get a free trip to Spain, Barcelona. Oh, wow, cool. Now, is there a connection between like the winners out of Startup Weekend and possibly rolling into this uh, pitch-off? Absolutely. So we're really excited to you know have a partnership with them. Um, we are a sponsor. And yes, we have decided that the top winner out of um, Startup Weekend will also have an automatic application or automatic pitch into the semifinals. Now, do they have to be mobile? I mean, of course, everybody coming up with an application has to be mobile, but <laughs> assuming they are, uh, they will have an automatic berth at the uh, at, at the pitch contest. Yes, absolutely. And if not mobile, but you know, if it's in the Innovate Her pitch off, mm-hmm. then they could also apply for that, and mm-hmm. they'll have an automatic bid into that pitch off. So I know that Innovate Her that pitch off is I think primarily coordinated by Sultan Ventures, mm-hmm. and they'll have more information about that. But Blue Startups is really kind of pulling together the mobile app challenge on the other side. Um, what are some of the in addition to the opportunity to to pitch at this larger international event? Um, what are some of the rewards that you could put out there to somebody participate in this app challenge. So yeah, um, so first of all, in the semifinals, it's going to be a fresh cafe again. We're expecting you know anywhere between 100 to 200 um, people. This in- would include investors of Hawaii, other entrepreneurs of Hawaii. It's always good to get your pitch and your company in front of other people, regardless of if you're ready or not or how you feel about it. So um, that's the first thing. And on the East Meets West, which is January 14th and 15th at the Hilton Hawaiian Village, we're bringing in entrepreneurs and investors from Asia, Silicon Valley, meeting up in Hawaii for a two-day conference. Hmm. And like I said, the exact same thing. It'll be an amazing 
amazing opportunity to get your name out there. Network, network, network. Now, you know, the uh, the pitch contest, does it have any connection with the cohort that is currently part of Blue Startup right now? Uh, or well, are they separate? Is a totally separate thing. Can the can the general cohort, public or, the yeah. general public can participate? But can the cohorts? Are, I mean, the teams that are part of the cohort can they participate? Right, as well? absolutely. So, so we're in our currently our sixth cohort at Blue Startups, fifty mm-hmm. portfolio companies, and we are definitely encouraging companies if they are mobile and fit the fit the fit the fit um, to apply for the program. Mm-hmm. But you're you're are you are open to just members of the general community. I mean, there are people out there. Even my son considers himself a mobile app developer. So, yeah. g- given the criteria and other information, Minecraft would he be <laughs> a Minecraft app? Would he be eligible to participate? Absolutely. Um, we're always pushing the startup paradise. We're helping any entrepreneur, anybody in Hawaii, try to build this you know startup ecosystem. Um, there are a few qualifications if All you right. are applying for the MCAP. And so the first one is that at least one applicant from the team must be a resident of Hawaii. Okay. Um, they cannot have raised venture capital funding of more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Okay. The team must consist of two to six applicants, mm. and um, at least one applicant from the team has to be between the age of eighteen and thirty-five. So okay. now there's a deadline coming up, right? Which is uh, like the sixteenth. Yeah, exactly. November sixteenth is the deadline to apply for both pitch offs. So that's what we're really pushing for right now. Don't miss this chance. Don't miss this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so please apply at hnlnt.com. For both um, applications and also bluestartups.com. So HNLNT, that's Honolulu New Tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Melly James's organization. Yep, they are putting on this. We are partnering up with them to put on both events. So if you are interested in one or the other, you come and you get to watch both. Is, are they going to interchange the pitches or is it going to be? Is it going to start one or the other? Right, absolutely. So both of them do have very different focuses. And we also have different judges for the panel. Um, so they will be separate, one after the other. But um, like I said, it's also open to the public. So if you're just you know, an interested entrepreneur and not pitching, but want to listen and you know, network and get the feel for everything, this is a free event. So yes, apply online, uh, bluestartups.com, and please, please RSVP if you're not applying. All right. So good. What, what I feel we've heard is that you can go to Startup Weekend this weekend, meet Kwame, uh, learn or even put together, join a team, and it turns out, hey, we've got a great idea. We've started to build a mobile app. Next week, the 16th, you say, all right, we're going to pitch this thing. And the pitching isn't until December. Yeah, so December you have first. an opportunity to hone that app and get it together. And who knows? You could be on the stage at East Meets West in right. January. So, But the timing is that you know if they do it this weekend, uh, they have to apply to get into and meet the deadline. So they may in, be in some state of euphoria because they just won <laughs> from Startup Weekend. Right, and then right. if they forget that they have to apply by the 16th. No, if they win, they're automatically applying. Oh, automatically. So we're taking ah. that into account. Ah. Absolutely. So Startup Weekend is definitely the beginning of a long journey, hopefully. You know, Startup Weekend. Well, and that's great. You know, the there's this whole ecosystem that I think is definitely evolving where there's a lot of opportunity. And I think I would highly suggest that if you're going to go through Startup Weekend and you want to hone your pitch you got to, you know, get involved with your pitch contest. And who knows, right. your startup could then have an actual pilot implementation of your technology at a residential re- rental community out in Kapolei. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. Thanks, Jared, for joining us. Thank you. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Brian Glazer and Brian Chi to talk about sensor tech and open hardware. What aspects of the environment are natural for advanced sensors? We, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of the conversations. Hardware nerds, let's hear from you. You can call 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live in the studio. You can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. 
About 20% of military families get a type of tax credit that Congress may vote to let expire after 2017. Well, I'm kind of frustrated with Congress right now because it seems to me that they're trying to fix things that aren't broke. I'm Molly Wood. How active military and veterans might be affected if the earned income tax credit and child tax credit expire. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. The Good Beginnings Alliance is changing its name. Next on The Conversation, we'll explore how the organization's expanding focus is more aptly reflected in its new name. That's the Hawaii Children's Action Network. And we'll talk about what that means as the organization gets ready for the 2016 legislative session. We'll talk tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Brian Glazer and Brian Chi. Brian Glazer is a associate professor of oceanography over at the University of Hawaii, and he's involved in aquatic... Let me try to get this straight. Geomicrobiology, marine redox, biogeochemistry, ocean observing technology. Very nice. Yeah. Brian, the other Brian, Brian Chi. Can we call, just call you Chibert? Yeah, let's go with Chibert. Chibert, okay, he's known as Chibert, is the director and founder of the Advanced Network Computing Laboratory at the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology, or SOEST, at the university. Uh, and he also works on networking for the Aloha Cabled Observatory. And, of course, uh, we'll be talking about a wide range of sensors, especially observing the ocean and the water. And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Brian and Chibert, I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you, and it's nice to be back. Yeah, Good well, we'll start with Brian. Uh, and, Brian, I saw you over at the, uh, the SOAS uh, Open House and you had a bunch of interesting things that you were demonstrating. And uh, let's start with maybe just sharing a little bit of some of the projects that you're involved in. I know Heia Fish Pond is one of them, but you're involved with a bunch of things. Sure. It was uh, great fun at the SOEST Open House. In, I've been in Hawaii for 11 years, mm-hmm. and, this is the, and we have the SOEST Open House every two years. This is the first time I've actually been on island for the event, so I was really excited to actually be able to participate this year. Uh, in two days, we had something like six or 7,000 visitors, so it's a great opportunity for the public to come and see what goes on inside the walls of Manoa in SOEST, what kinds of environmental earth, ocean, earth science technology is happening. Mm-hmm. And for me, from my perspective, it's, it's fun to try to remind myself to engage with K through 12 or public audiences as opposed to what we do daily and talk within the walls of the oceanography building to colleagues about maybe fine and detailed studies to kind of think about the environment from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of fun to do that. And then uh, give us a little quick, uh, uh, some of the top projects you're involved in. Right. So in my group, we study, as you mentioned, biogeochemistry. And what that means is a lot of different things. Anywhere there is water, I can go and find a question that's interesting to me. And so, again, the the challenge is thinking about how is that important to other people and other folks. And one really key fundamental thing that everybody understands is if we breathe. Right. Everybody take a breath. We do that (laughs) and we take out, (laughs) let it out, breathe in another one. 
And 50% of our oxygen comes from tiny little plants in the oceans, right? So plants and trees and other land plants give us the rest, but half of our oxygen comes from the oceans. And so just based on that alone, it's incredibly important, and it's easy to convey to folks how important it is to understand the synergy, how chemistry and biology act in the oceans. And then you can start to imagine very quickly how complicated that gets and how important it becomes to then measure as many different aspects of that ocean chemistry as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Shebert, yeah, I don't even know where to begin in terms of uh, bringing people up to speed on your many, many activities. Again, you've, you've been, we've had you on the show before. I see you, though, I, I don't get to see you as much in person as much as I see you on podcasts uh, talking about hardware, for example. Yeah, I actually... Brian Glazier and I and a couple other gentlemen at uh, Manoa actually have a very large project that we're going to be launching in the fall. It's an embedded systems class, and basically we're going to teach the students how to build their own science instruments. Ah. So one of the things that I've built with another friend, um, Ben Hickman, is an open source spectrometer. And basically what a spectrometer does is allows us to go and look at what chemicals are in suspension in some sort of sample. But they're like seven to $10,000 for a cheap one. Well, well okay, Brian, Brian, well, Chebert, before you get into the details, I want to just give a little bit of context of what your relationship with Brian is in terms of Brian's doing the research, he's, he's studying water with sensors. Mr. Chebert, what is it that you do in terms of helping to make that system work? Well, yeah, har- hard to say. Uh, there's a lot of crossovers. I, my specialty is communications. Mm-hmm. I get equipment to talk to each other, and I, I'm loaned out or borrowed by <laughs> projects all over the School of Ocean Earth Science and Technology. So I actually work on smart meters and smart grid technology for the Hawaii Natural Energy Institute. I provide... Um, uh, communication systems for the Vice Chancellor Planning. I do a lot of work. I own the technically own the network for the Law Cabled Observatory, and I also design custom sensor systems for various projects mm. throughout the University of Hawaii system. Heck, I even build video walls for places like Department of Emergency Management and Hawaii Fire Department. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when you talked about the spectrometer that you built, I mean, well, one that was recently in the news and on the front page, uh, for better or worse, was the Hyakasat, was a spectrom- spectrography tool that was going to be put into space aboard the uh, rocket that unfortunately was lost when it was uh, launched off of Kauai. But you mentioned that these are usually, and I'd imagine if you're working with different departments or programs across the SOAST, a lot of this hardware is proprietary, brand-named, licensed. You're not allowed to crack open the box, let alone tinker with it. Uh, so how much of a challenge is are those things to getting science done? Is it the cost that you think is the primary inhibitor to doing science with with important and, and, and useful hardware, or is it even other things like uh, manufacturer warranties or licenses and things like that? Well, actually, what we're doing is we're sidestepping a lot of that. We're designing it from scratch and creating designs that can be done with regularly, easily obtainable parts. So like the spectrometers, all uh, catalog order pieces and 3D printing. Um, the idea is science needs to be accessible. We need to make science accessible to every school, every student, no matter whether they have a big budget or not. And so this is where there's a big area of crossover between myself and Brian Glazier. He and I are both interested in making science more accessible. Instead of having to buy a really, really, really expensive instrument, why not try and design something that can be given to the world? I'm open sourcing my designs so that even the have-not schools, even the poorest areas of the world can do things with a spectrometer, say, like 
water quality analysis. Dr. Glazier here is doing something very, very similar. Instead of buying a really super expensive uh, instrument package, he's taking the same laboratory-grade uh, sensors but putting it on a less expensive platform. And I, uh, that's probably where we probably ought to toss to him. Yes, yeah. yes, Brian. Yeah, so that's a, you, uh, one of the things that I saw was a, a sensor that was able to detect oxygen in some you know, pretty – Look like pretty polluted water. Yeah, right? it's, a, it's a great point. And, you know, as oceanographers, a lot of the techniques and analyses that we do in the lab have been around for decades and decades. And so oceanography is starting to catch up in being able to make measurements in situ out in the water column mm-hmm. or in the muds that we only 10 years ago could never even dream of doing. So, um, you know, meteorology has had a 50 or 60 year head start on us, and we can still only predict the weather with reasonable you know, accuracy, maybe. Mm. But um, that's where we're trying to go with this and take some of that um, that pathway into the oceans and especially into the coastal zone. And so, as you mentioned, um, you know, we do this all over the world with deep uh, remote operated vehicles, exploring the deep ocean and undersea volcanoes and that kind of thing. But where I really want to kind of talk about today is how we're doing it in the coastal zone that ties into public access, uh, which is what, what Brian mentioned. And so typically, you know, even when I'm fortunate enough to get funding from the National Science Foundation and, you know, three years of sustained funding with graduate students and equipment costs, I can still only afford so many instruments that, co- t- that cost ten to fifteen to $20,000. And maybe the questions that I'm asking require a broader spatial coverage or a, an absolute sustained presence without missing an hour of mm-hmm, measurement time mm-hmm. on the seafloor. And the problem, of course, is that we can't do that. We can only afford so many instruments. And in the la- and you know, K through 12 schools can't afford any at all. Citizen scientists can't afford any of that at all. And so in the last five years or so, the really exciting part from my perspective, being a little bit of a geeky, techie background type, is that single board computers, Arduinos, Raspberry Pis, BeagleBone Blacks are cheap and accessible. For less than $65, you can have something that fits in an Altoids tin and runs a full version of Linux. Once we have that, we can run Python. It hasn't cost a dime yet in software, and we can start to learn something about Python scripting literally by just Googling it and teaching ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so to me, someone who's not an electrical engineer, I'm not a computer programmer per se, I took a month in graduate school and tried to teach myself C++, and it was the worst month that I ever <laughs> had, right? But Python I can take to a little bit easier. And so there's a lot of folks out there like me who can focus on the science without dedicating our careers to understanding computer programming, but we would ask questions from an electrical engineer standpoint that electrical engineers would never think to ask mm-hmm. because of the different research needs. And so then when someone like me is just dangerous enough to start building and tweaking and then go to electrical engineers or software programmers and say, here's what we really need to do, that's when the magic happens. And that's what's happened in the last 10, 12 months in moving from literally me finding a Beagle in black, a little bit of Python scripting, and a couple of low-cost sensors, mm. to then now having an NSF project funded to work in Hayea Fish Pond, doing some of the measurements like oxygen, like salinity, temperature, uh, turbidity, a lot of water quality parameters, but we can now do it with a sustained presence at multiple nodes in an 88-acre fish pond. So when you talk about a sustained presence, uh, that typically means that you have the sensor out in the water. It's somehow communicating back in a fairly real-time basis, uh, always on. <clears throat> it's probably getting getting power from somewhere. Uh, and you want to probably minimize the amount of wiring that goes out to that sensor. So describe the engineering challenge that you might be facing to get this sustained presence with a sensor. 
Exactly. And so I've, um, as I, I kind of briefly mentioned, I have a new National Science Foundation uh, project funded, and the title for that project is Development and Deployment of Distributed Mini Observatory Nodes to Couple STEM Training with Coastal Biogeochemistry. And so the coastal biogeochemistry, you know, that's me. That's what we do as oceanographers in, in kind of my division and department and, and colleagues and collaborators of mine. The, the bridge to the, the engineering, there were really three things that made this available. One is the accessibility and the importance of studying these systems in Hay, a fish pond. It's local, it's accessible, and we have a very friendly nonprofit managing organization in Paipaio, Heia, mm -hmm. who's there running it and wants the data. Two, the advent of these low-cost single-board computers, $65, I can get a BeagleBone Black, run Linux, run Python scripting, run R stats, do it all with free software from literally data collection all the way through to generating fancy graphs to put on the web. Three is instead of paying for satellite data transmission or cellular data transmission and paying by the gigabyte, I'm now able to do it for free in Coastal Zone because of the advent of XB or Zigbee technology, which mm. Mm -hmm. serendipitously I learned that, that Brian Chi was involved in the early development of. We're talking to Brian Glazer, Associate Professor of Oceanography over at SOAST, and Brian Chi, Director and Founder of the Advanced Network Computing Laboratory, about sensor technology and open hardware and making discoveries with, with affordable and easily accessible and buildable technology tools. If you've got a question for them, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. Now, Chebert, uh, uh, he mentioned a couple of times Beagleborn Black. I, I've heard of, you know, I've heard of Arduino and it sounds like a similar idea. What is Beagleborn Black? Well, the Beagleborn Black is, Born again, Black. a <laughs> single <laughs> board computer based on, you know, relatively inexpensive chips. But what they've done is getting a little more horsepower, being able mm. to do more things with it, um, true analog um, inputs. Uh, basically, it's the next step. There's more There's more horsepower there. You can do more things. The BeagleBone Black can actually run uh, not only Linux, but also Windows 10 Embedded and various other operating systems. There are actually real-time operating systems. So uh, a BeagleBone Black is actually used for timing-sensitive things. BeagleBone Blacks are actually very, very sensitive. Um, popular for uh, hobby rockets, um, mm. large hobby rockets, the kinds that you have to move around in a pickup truck. Uh, there's see. lots of well, neat well, things well, out there. And what was the other one? The Zig Zigbee? Zigbee. Um, that's like the, the connected home kind of uh, platform, right? That's correct. In fact, there is uh, talks going on about putting in a very large Zigbee network at the University of Hawaii so that we can go and get a lot better idea of how much and where the power is being used. Uh, Zigbee is very, very popular for the smart meter world and just happens to have been a spinoff from a DARPA project called Sensit. We designed, the goal was to create a mesh network, self-organizing, self-healing, meaning if you lose one, it'll, it, the, it'll route around it automatically. We use those to daisy chain sensors into a deep forest on Hawaii, in Hawaii Volcanoes huh. National Park and relay out uh, data. We were trying to find out why certain plants were going extinct. And we also wanted to bring out high resolution images that just this radio, the radio just didn't go very far in a rainforest. So Zigbee made a lot of differences. It got spun off by 
uh, people at the MIT Media Lab, DARPA, and because it was done on a DARPA project, there are no license fees, so Zigbee can go crazy. Well, you know, uh, when I when I hear about sensors and putting them out in the field, one of the things that I, I know that you offset is the, the low cost, but I was always kind of curious about the durability of it, the ruggedness of it, but it sounds to me like if you're putting them out in the uh, rainforests of, of, of the Big Island that or or maybe the Aloha Cable Observatory, that these things can also take a licking and keep on ticking? Yeah, there's actually uh, hardened versions of many of these boards, but you can design them differently. You can package them differently. I even had one that was packaged in aerogel in a pyramid shape with photovoltaic sensors on two faces and moisture sensors on the other, and they were actually designed to be dropped from 30,000 feet out of the back of a C-130, and the plan was we were going to censor the Amazon rainforest. That's how durable they could be. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, Brian, you mentioned uh, Zigbee. I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, fascinated by this decision to go with that networking uh, solution. What was it that it offered you that perhaps Wi-Fi didn't or some other uh, networking? Like you mentioned, you said you know the cell, cell service or whatever. So what did, what did Zigbee offer? Yeah, it's cool. And again, I'm I'm not an expert in this kind of thing. The way I explain it to my mother is, you know, it's like fancy walkie-talkies for computers, mm-hmm. and that's effectively it. And so now, within line of sight, almost like VHF radio from you know ship to shore, if you're in line of sight, you can now transmit data. And so right now in Haya Fish Pond, we have five different instrument packages out at each of the makahas, the gates in the walls, if you will, and. They are streaming live data every six minutes back to a base station from each of these little mini nodes, streaming oxygen, temperature, depth, so we can actually see how the, hydro, how the hydrodynamics within the pond are changing on tide cycle, how the salinity is distributed across the pond. And ultimately, that kind of information can help pond managers decide and make decisions about growing food. Mm-hmm. And is there a, is there a, uh, a bandwidth? Uh, what's the, uh, the data rate that you're transmitting at? Um, we're transmitting it, you know, like uh, 14.4 baud or something like that. It's fast enough because it's just single lines of text, and we're doing uh-huh. it frequently enough that we're just, you know, we're, we're streaming single lines of text from individual instruments. It's, it's, it's fast enough. Yeah, and I should also add, Zigbee has a huge, huge, huge advantage over Wi-Fi in that it uses dramatically less power. And if you're in a environment where you have photovoltaic and batteries, you want it to use as little power as possible and still achieve your goals. So, yeah, I was going to ask you, are you powering the sensors with a couple of batteries or is it uh, with some photovoltaic that you have on a stand somewhere? Uh, how are you using the power? Getting exactly. Power? And since, you know, away from my other life as kind of a deep ocean explorer, not having to buy titanium pressure cases, I could put these in Pelican cases for 20 or 30 bucks with a battery and with some solar panels from, you know, a company like Goal Zero. It's all almost clickable from Amazon.com. You know, you can take a look at my my recent purchase list and replicate this <laughs> stuff. And so that, again, in terms of trying to put this out there for the community is and for the public is, is where we're trying to go with this. Now, you talked about the data piece and creating a mesh network so you don't have to rely on Wi-Fi or you don't have to rely necessarily on cell networks. But at some point, this data must transit from this mesh network to, shall we say, the conventional corporate commercial internet. Interwebs. I mean, where where is that it, that happened. Exactly. And that's where we're really fortunate in having this great partner in the nonprofit organization, Paipai Ohea. They have a building to help them manage the pond facility there. And they've offered up, in exchange for our work in the pond, they've offered up the Ethernet connection. So ah. we have a base station there plugged into Ethernet, which then beams data back to our servers at SOEST. Now, uh, you know, um, uh, Mr. Chibert, uh, you had mentioned open source. And I want to get into that because that kind of leads us into the whole idea of sort of the open hardware concept. Want to hold that thought? We want to. 
take this short break to continue our conversation with uh, Brian Glazer and Mr. Chebert here about sensor tech and uh, open hardware. Yep. How is data transmitted from sensors and what does the repository look like at the other end? What can we do with that information? Of course, we'd love to hear your questions as well. Our phone lines are always open at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I listen to the news every single morning. Pretty much that's my way of getting the news. I also listen to the news at night. It's usually BBC Africa, but that's what I listen to. Pretty much I don't change the dial very much, and I probably shouldn't admit to that, but my station is HPR. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Brand Courtright, the author of The Neurogenesis Diet and Lifestyle. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about upgrading your brain and upgrading your life. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Brian Glazer and Brian Chibert Chi about building sensor networks. And of course, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And right before the break, we were starting to get into the idea of Brian, well, Mr. Chibert, you said open source and the idea of Open hardware, I think, is is a relatively new one. But just like open source code, the design of an open hardware, let's say, um, design is 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 freely available, no copyright, just like Creative Commons. So, what is it that you see benefiting from making your designs open and freely accessible? Oh, uh, why don't we back up just a shade because the the open source hardware movement really and truly got a lot of um, groundswell because of the Raspberry Pi. Our friends in the United Kingdom designed a system because computer science platforms were too expensive for them to teach on, so they created the Raspberry Pi, one of the first, actually I think it was the first, $35 single board computer. Mm -hmm. Well, you can actually take that basic design, you can get the circuit board designs, the chips, inventory the whole thing and redesign it in a custom package so if you wanted a raspberry pi that was say three or four feet long and only an inch wide so it'll fit inside a pvc tube no problem at all what i've done with my partner ben hickman is we're open sourcing things like turbidity sensors spectrometers uh titration systems um a lot of the science equipment's just in our minds just way too expensive and something that uh, schools, you know, middle schools, high schools, a lot of a lot of them just can't afford it. So what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we've done the work on it. We've designed it. I'm actually creating curriculum for the spectrometer so that middle school kids can do water quality analysis. 
the concept behind this is I want to make the world a better place. So we're saying you can have it, you can use it, you can print it, you can build it, you can modify it. Just give us some credit because someday I'm going to need to be a uh, senior. I want to become a professor and then, you know, so forth. (laughs) But there's a lot of people that are like-minded. My lab actually hosts one of the largest Linux mirror sites on on the planet. And there's a lot of us that want to make the world a better place. And what we're doing is we're saying we are giving our intellectual property away because we think that's a good thing for the planet. When you can get open source hardware plans, and so you're saying you're building it with things that are readily accessible too. I mean, at one at what point, just like when we're talking about being able to 3D print your own car parts, are you even going to be able to get that uh, granular with creating the pieces of open hardware without even having to go and buy it from a chip shop, you know, that you could even fabricate it in your house? Well, I think the world is changing. It's not going to be concentrating so much on a giant supply chain and warehousing and things like that. I think we're going to start seeing, you know, what you mentioned car parts. I think we're going to start seeing dealers with large commercial 3D printers. And instead of having to warehouse and ship, say, a rear view mirror, wouldn't it be great to just print it on demand? Wouldn't it be great to print a circuit board for a car computer? Wouldn't it be great to go and print a new controller for your refrigerator? Um, We're not that far away. And open source and the ability to print on demand. So say, for instance, we have, let's let's take that a little sideways and say, hey, we've got a commercial design. Uh, Instead of having to spend, say, two, three hundred dollars for a control board for my refrigerator, wouldn't it be great if I could just pay them royalties? Say, I'm going to pay you ten bucks for the right to be able to print a copy that just turned the whole supply chain world upside down and sideways. But does do a long way towards making the world a better place because there's less waste. We're using less fuel to move things around. Uh, maybe we're even using less energy because we're not having to light warehouses. I saw a, a small little uh, uh, weather monitor that you had on display at the uh, SOAS open house. And, you know, nowadays when you, well, you know, if you wanted to go buy a weather station, I mean, you're talking a couple, three, four, five hundred bucks to, you know, put one up. But I mean, yours just was a limited thing. But it, it it had temperature, humidity, and I think uh, barometric pressure barometric, and light. Yeah. And it was just a little, little piece of <laughs> yeah, hardware. And, and yeah, the, the electric imp is thirty bucks on Amazon. I I too buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. And well, go ahead. No, I mean when you're talking about all of the different things, I mean uh, Brian for Hey Fish Pond, you're looking at water quality, like you mentioned, and certainly I want to hear more about that deployment, but. How wide is this this world? I mean, what other kinds of data are people collecting? I'm sure you can throw them in the water. Are people floating them in the sky? Are they? I mean, it's clearly UH and other CubeSat people are sending things into space. But is there no end right now? Is there is there anything that is outside of the reach of a researcher, for example, in terms of the kinds of data that can be collected? Yeah, that's a great question. And the sky is really the limit at this part. I I feel like we are at the precipice of this really exploding because of the accessibility. And it's it's kind of like if if all the superstar sports high school stars are only playing football, then 
hockey or track and field or other sports aren't as good. And the same thing is now happening in terms of electrical engineering and computer science for environmental scientists, right? And so my, my most recent hire is an electrical engineer. He has a he just received his master's degree from University of Southern California in electrical engineering. He has an undergrad degree in computer science. He, by all rights, should never have come to work for me for what I'm paying him. <laughs> but he's interested in this kind of thing because it's a fun project that allows him to express some creativity that he wouldn't get if he were making three or four times the salary, but working in a cubicle. Mm. At, you know, at Sprint or AT and T or something like that, and so the sky is really the limit. I think we're just at the at the at the cusp of that because of the utility and what it can bring, as well as the outreach. Well, you mentioned kind of sort of the market, the the, the regular world, the commercial world. So I'll ask you this question: um, Certainly, with AEA, you have a nonprofit organization. They need and they can benefit from the help that you can provide. But and so affordable sensors are good. You're providing them. You're interpreting the data. But when you start talking about oh, how can this be deployed in that commercial world? A lot of people will ask. And I'm just tying it to, for example, open source software. When people try to ding something like Linux or open source software in the corporate environment, they go, yeah, well, who's going to support it? Who are you going to call at 2 a.m. when the thing breaks? I mean, is it such that just like, say, for example, WordPress development, that the ecosystem is healthy enough that you could feel secure in making a choice for this kind of open source hardware and have support to keep it running? Yeah, it's getting there. And I think even more importantly is the the more accessible it is, the more people know how to do it then. And so, so through these kinds of partnerships, you know, for me, this, this Heia partnership is, is, there's two kind of prongs to it. One, I mean, Heia is an awesome place. This is, you know, an 88-acre walled fish pond in Kaneohe Bay. It was built six to 800 years ago by Native Hawaiians to do exactly what we want to do today, and that's make aquaculture productive in the coastal zone. And uh, in 1965, there was a giant flood which broke about 200 feet or so linear feet of the wall. And then further decades, invasive mangroves and other aspects of disrepair kind of came around Heia. Until about 2001, a group of young Hawaiians uh, founded this nonprofit organization aimed at the cultural and environmental restoration for the fish pond, Paipai uh, Oheia. And so in, in working with them, we're able to blend kind of contemporary and historical knowledge of how the system should work to be sustainable um, with contemporary quantified biogeochemistry of how the system is working today because, of course, there are very different challenges today than 600 years ago. So we want to be able to measure oxygen in several different places. Uh, here's an example for you. In, in an El Nino year, which we've just experienced, uh, trade winds shut down for three, seven, ten days, and it gets very, very hot and no winds. And in a stagnant coastal pond like that, that can very, very significantly affect not just temperature, but also dissolved oxygen concentrations in the pond at night. In the daytime, photosynthesis is happening, producing oxygen, everybody's breathing, no problem. At nighttime, nobody's producing oxygen, everybody's breathing, and you can have low enough oxygen concentrations where you could kill, say, 100,000 seedlings that you're trying to grow and, and take to market. And so this kind of information is important to be able to quantify at different places in the pond. So one, we can help in terms of blending cultural and, and um, ecological sustainability and restoration. Two are the outreach opportunities. Through, you know, Pai Pai runs educational programs. They've got 9,000 people per year coming to visit the Heia Fish Pond, mm. including seventh graders. And so I've partnered with a, a middle school science uh, curriculum and science teacher um, at Halau Kumana, a charter school in, in Manoa. She takes her classes out a couple times a month to Heia. They do traditional water quality sampling. They measure oxygen, pH, temperature, salinity at a time point, and they see a number. 
and then I give them access to live streaming data that shows them how things are different in the daytime or the nighttime. And then I'm able to actually send this stuff. You know, if, if, I, if I don't have to pay $22,000 for a package that makes those measurements for me, I have to pay maybe 1000 I can give it to seventh graders. If they break it, they break it. It's not a $22,000 right. loss. Gbert? <laughs> right. uh, so taking this idea a little further, I've been on my high horse ever since I used to work for the federal government. I wanted kids to have a higher degree of exposure to being able to build science instruments, build their own tools. So, like, for instance, I'm going to do a shout-out to the Barnes & Noble people. This last weekend, they had a mini maker fair at their facility, and I was demonstrating a child's toy called Little Bits. Well, I had tools. I had pieces there that I actually use in my college-level classes to teach basic electronics right down to it even has an Arduino, which is a single board computer, so that children from, I had two-year-olds using more like building blocks. I had middle school kids building things and understanding how things like 555 timer chips work. And you could go all the way up to the uh, college college level because I'm actually thinking about using it for basic electronics. Well, the point is we are not going to change the world if we don't know how to. And I'm being a little selfish. I want the students in high school, middle school to have these skills so that by the time I get them at the college level, we can skip the simple stuff and go into really building and changing the world. And that's why Brian Glazier and I and Jim Potemara and Mike Guidry are working on an embedded systems class that we hope to open this fall to teach the students how to build their own science instruments. So instead of having to blow $20,000, on a commercial piece of equipment, right. maybe they can afford to do it just on their part-time job money so they can fund their own research projects. So, Brian, in, in collecting the data and showing them the, the utility of understanding some of the changes in climate and how it affects the condition of the water, how receptive were the, let's say, the practitioners in, in receiving this <laughs> sort of scientific Western analysis of the water? Uh, and how did they incorporate that into their sort of cultural practice? Yeah, they love it. Um, I mean, I, I've got a pretty close working relationship. I started studying in Hea Fishbon in 2005, 2006 with a group of other professors at UH Manoa. Uh, Kathleen Ruttenberg and Margaret McManus and I were kind of thinking about questions from um, quantifiable uh, uh, perspectives in terms of hydro, hydro, hydrology of the pond. Where is water moving? How is it mixing in the pond? Uh, what are the oxygen and nutrient and carbon budgets? How are things cycling in the pond? And so we worked there for a long time. And these kinds of things where I've wanted to, are something I've wanted to do for a long time and just never had the opportunity to do in terms mm -hmm. of streaming mm -hmm. data. So they love it. It tells them exactly how each makaha is operating. And in the last year, they've, uh, they've been working hard to fix that 200-foot break in the wall. Uh, by the end of this year, it should be probably complete, and so they're working hard with volunteers to do that. And as that happens, it changes the way water flows in the pond, and now I've got depth sensors at all these different makahas that allow them to see tidal change. Have yeah. any of the kids gone into oceanography or got into the, uh, the SOAS uh, curriculum? Got, yeah, so so through that, you know, and, and the landowners there are camp schools, and they, they sponsor not only the staff there, but also uh, internships in the summertime. They work with my lab, Kathleen's lab, lots of other researchers at UH Manoa, and so we're, we're starting a pipeline. And like I said, I'm starting maybe young now in partnering with Halal Kumana at seventh grade levels. But, you know, come back in six years and maybe some of them will be right. uh, global environmental science mm -hmm. majors. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah. Cool. yeah. Uh, Cheaper, if, if I could ask, um, we talked about the data coming out of it. And Brian Glazier mentioned, you know, they can see it and see the status and make decisions. But 
I would imagine. I'm, I'm curious what the software side looks like. They're not looking at the actual telemetry coming off of the sensors. So what is the user end of this data that you're collecting? Well, there, there's like? also a revolution happening in what's called data visualization. And this actually ties into the, the, the famous buzzword, Internet of Things. And the idea is we're, we're gathering all this data. It's streaming in sometimes ginormous bunches of data. There are more and more tools. Um, Dr. Glazer mentioned Python. There's a lot of very, very good tools for visualizing that. But there's more and more tools like the big data revolution, Hadoop, able to take in large amounts of data and index it so that we can use it and also be able to provide uh, interfaces for people to use that in different manners. Because, you know, large, large data sets like from the Aloha Cable Observatory, that is pro the Hawaii Ocean Time Series is probably one of the most popular time series on the face of the Earth. It's also certainly one of the oldest. And we're just adding to that, especially now at the Aloha Cable Observatory being on 24 by 7. So it's this giant Internet of Things swell. Come and join the revolution. <laughs> well, Internet of Things and, and Brian, so a lot of water quality sensing that you're involved in, do you see the same kind of sensing technology being applied to land projects, air projects? I mean, what, what the other sensor opportunities are there? Yeah, definitely. As somebody who asks questions about how is the chemistry affecting the biology and vice versa, there's all, you know, pick your, pick your element of choice, oxygen, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. whatever, or pick your, your parameter. And uh, as Brian hit on hit upon, the data visualization now is so cool. And, you know, everybody's familiar with Yahoo Finance. You can pick your favorite stock and you can look at it and you can scroll through interactive plots and see, you know, by minute by minute how the, the dollar amount's changing. And what a waste of intellect, right? I mean, <laughs> the average stock is held for something like 15 minutes or something, right? So what we want to do is be able to take that same kind of interactive, near real-time plotting technology and apply it to something that, from my perspective, is important, environmental chemistry. And it doesn't matter if you're terrestrial or aquatic. Yeah, and I like what you said, that it's a traditional practice at Hiya uh, Fish Pond, and I'm sure there's an art to it. There's, a, there's, a, there's the cultural aspect to it, but now they can use technology to improve their processes. I mean, it's not like they're losing something through the use of technology. They're enhancing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. No, great stuff. So where can people find out more about your work, both of you? Um, I think probably if you Google me, you'll get me. B-R-I-A-N-G-L-A-Z-E-R, certainly in at Hawaii or Manoa or SOEST, School of Ocean, Earth Sciences and Technology. Uh, there's a, a long, long website that I won't repeat here, but you can actually <laughs> today, right now, this evening, find and click and uh, within 12 minutes ago or so, you can find near real-time plots of oxygen, temperature, salinity, multiple different Do parameters. Do they have that up on the uh, the Hea Fish Pond website? We'll uh, there that. might be a link through Hea okay. as well. Yeah, and there's also definitely links on the main source webpage, which is www.soest.hawaii.edu. And you would just look through and find the professors, and that'll get you to Dr. Glazier's link. You can also find resources like the Advanced Network Computing Laboratory, the Cabled Observatory, and so forth. Uh, I will challenge each one of your listeners that get involved. There's a lot of things you can do now, and use your children as a resource. Um, the kids at the Barnes & Noble Maker Fair were teaching their parents right. how to hook up electronic circuits, and that's very, very exciting. Very cool. Brian Glazer Fantastic. is an associate professor in oceanography at SOAS, and, of course, Mr. Brian Chibert, she is the director and founder of the Advanced Network Computing Laboratory. I want to thank you both for joining us tonight. It was great being here. Thanks a lot.
Thank you very much, and look forward to being here again. Of course. <laughs> and thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week, and we'll talk about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. That's right. And, we'll, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And you can always find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Sea Pony out of Seattle and a song called Saul Alight. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bite Marks Cafe.